Welcome to Missouri Marvel's Humanities, Discovery, and Innovation. This third season of our podcast considers our state's role in the intricate relationship between discovery, innovation, and the human experience. Tune in as we explore the possibilities of human progress and cultural evolution, journey through history to showcase Missouri trailblazers and technological advancements, illuminate the transformative power of discovery and innovation, and navigate the complexities and challenges of an ever-changing world. Space settlement is rapidly becoming ever more likely. Will it look like the utopian vision of Star Trek or the dark future of Star Wars? Can our earthly ways thrive in the cosmos? For the first episode of this new season, we are thrilled to be able to share with you a previously recorded program from Missouri Humanities. On February 17, 2024, Missouri Humanities held our keynote event for this year's signature series at the James S. McDonald Planetarium in St. Louis, the perfect setting for this conversation, featuring St. Louis Public Radio's Elaine Cha and Dr. Erica Nesvold, an astrophysicist and the author of Off Earth, Ethical Questions and Quandaries for Living in Outer Space. Good evening, everyone. On behalf of Missouri Humanities, I'm thrilled to welcome you to the keynote event for our 2024 signature series, Missouri Marvels, Humanities, Discovery, and Innovation. My name is Caitlin Yeager, a program director for Missouri Humanities, and I'd also like to shout out my co-program director for this event, Lisa Carrico, over there. Missouri Humanities is a member-supported nonprofit organization committed to providing engaging public programs, enlightening digital storytelling projects, and much-needed grant funding throughout the state of Missouri. I could go on and on, but it'd be better to just invite you all to follow us on social media at Mo Humanities and learn more about us at mohumanities.org. Our conversation this evening will be a stellar experience, and what an incredible setting for it at the James S. McDonald Planetarium. In just a moment, I'll introduce our host for the conversation, Elaine Cha. But I want to remind you all that we will have a live Q&A opportunity during the last portion of our program, so please feel free to join the conversation during that time. Following the event, Novel Neighbor will have copies of Off Earth available for purchase, and they will be, um, so here's the book, and they are located, if you want to give a little bit of a wave, Novel Neighbor, just there in the back to purchase books. Um, and then, of course, we will have a signing event um, with Dr. Erica Nesfold following the program. The book is excellent. I highly recommend it, as tonight's conversation will merely scratch the surface of this expansive and complicated topic. And for that reason, let's get right to it. I'm delighted to introduce Elaine Cha. As many of you may know, Elaine is the host of St. Louis Public Radio's flagship talk show, St. Louis on the Air. In that role, she guides discussions with respect and honesty about issues important to the St. Louis region. The show airs every weekday from noon to 1 p.m. and 7 to 8, and is the station's most listened to podcast. Elaine joined St. Louis Public Radio in 2022, and previous roles include work for Public Radio in Southern California, Big Brothers Big Sisters of Eastern Missouri, 9PBS, and the Ferguson Commission. As we begin our program, please give an enthusiastic welcome to Elaine Shaw. Thank you, Caitlin. And uh, it's a pleasure to be with you all. I'm going to sit here now so that I'm not <laughs> distracting you all. Uh, our conversation tonight 
we'll take up a subject that has fascinated countless humans across time and place and culture, and that's space and our relationship with it. So Erica has many titles. First, there's doctor. Erica earned her PhD in physics from the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. She's done astrophysics research at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, the Carnegie Institute's Department of Terrestrial Magnetism, and the NASA Frontier Laboratory. And for the past several years, she's worked on astronomy simulation software as an astrophysicist engineer at Universe Sandbox. Basically, she puts together uh, things that allow you to smash the moon into Earth and see what happens virtually. But Erica has other titles too. Among them, producer and host of 2017's Making or Making New Worlds, a 13-episode podcast exploring ethical issues around space settlement. Then there is co-founder of Just Space Alliance, a nonprofit for people curious and concerned about challenging space society questions. It connects those people to one another, as well as to experts in diverse fields. And there is writer. In addition to cont contributions to Astronomy Magazine, The Planetary Society, and DamnInteresting.com, Erica Nesvold is co-editor of the 2023 anthology, Reclaiming Space, Progressive and Multicultural Visions of Space Exploration. And of course, she's here with us tonight for this Missouri Humanities event as the author of Off Earth, Ethical Questions and Quandaries for Living in Outer Space. That's a, a lot. <laughs> and without further ado, here is Erica Nesvold. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you all. So I'd like to start with kind of who you are and what it is you do. So we were talking about the, the flight that you took coming in uh, from Charlotte yesterday. I'm glad that you made it in. It was a close the, call yesterday. Through the weather. When someone sitting next to you on a plane asks you what you do, how do you respond? That's an interesting question. There's a, a joke among astronomers and astrophysicists, which are kind of the same thing, uh, where that we say if, you, if someone next to you on an airplane asks you what you do, if you want to talk to them, you say astronomer, and if you don't want to talk to them, you say astrophysicist, <laughs> because it sounds a little intimidating. But both of them are the same thing. Astronomers uh, study the night sky and, and use really massive telescopes to try to figure out as much as they can, uh, studying these, these giant objects we can't actually go out and touch. And uh, astrophysics involves using our understanding of math and especially of physics here on Earth to try to figure out what's going on up there and, uh, and to, to use our observations to try to figure out new things about physics. Mm -hmm. um, and so as a research scientist, I was looking for planets around other stars, so exoplanets, and I was uh, doing that by studying the physics of asteroid belts, which sound kind of boring, but they look really cool in telescope images. And I was making computer simulations of how those asteroid belts would, would get shaped by planets. And then I, I used that, that experience to get uh, really a dream job with a company that makes a, a video game called Universe Sandbox. It's really just a fantastic, beautiful astrophysics simulation 
um, that you can actually interact with, which none of my research stuff could, could really do. You can go in there and you can throw the moon at the Earth and see what happens. You can um, slow the Earth down so that one side always faces the sun and one side always faces away. And you can watch one side get all melty and the other side freezes. Um, and you can look at galaxies and black holes, just uh, tons of fun. Mm -hmm. And it's all based on real science. And so it's a way to give people who don't study astrophysics uh, a more intuitive understanding uh, because they're actually doing these things themselves of, of what's going on up there. Mm -hmm. How did you get interested in this in the first place? Um, so astrophysics uh, I got into because I was very good at math and I watched way too much science fiction as a kid. Uh, it's a pretty common recipe among astronomers. And then a few years into being a research astrophysicist, um, I had a chance to go out and visit Silicon Valley, California, um, as part of NASA's Frontier Development Laboratory. We were doing some research about planetary defense, but I got to meet a bunch of people, a bunch of entrepreneurs in this new space industry. So these are the people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and a lot of smaller companies who want to start making money off of space. And they're trying to figure out how to make rocket launches cheaper, um, how to mine asteroids and make money that way. And a lot of these people think that we should we humans should go out and be living in space on a more permanent basis. And that's something I had always been interested in. So I was really excited to talk to these, these business people, these entrepreneurs, but I was kind of disappointed by my conversations with them. Um, I would ask them questions about things that I thought were going to be really important, like how do we avoid um, contaminating the moon's environment if we go up and try to mine the moon's surface? Or what do we do about protecting labor rights if your workers are living and working in outer space? And they just kept saying things like, oh, well, we'll worry about that later, which didn't seem right to me. Mm -hmm. um, but I also knew that as someone who had just mostly taken math and science classes in, in college and beyond, uh, that I didn't have the right answers to these either. We needed to think about social science uh, and use the expertise of social scientists, and I needed to, to consult with people in the humanities as well. And so, um, like any good millennial, I responded to this by coming back home and making a podcast and, mm -hmm. uh, and talking to all these people. And that was sort of my first entryway into thinking about space ethics. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about what happened in Silicon Valley, you said you know, what folks were saying to you was, we'll worry about that later. Who was that we? And you know, how was it tied to your, your own research into the fields of humanities like history, sociology, anthropology, and ethics? That's a really great question, and it comes up a lot in my work, is, is what do we mean by we? Um, the people I was talking to, and I was, I was asking them questions about what their company was going to do, and so they were answering on behalf of, of their company. But I think a lot of the people who, especially the, the companies who were talking about humanity having this big grand future in space where we're expanding our civilization into space, they like to talk about space on behalf of all communities. So when they say we, they mean the whole species. But um, they don't often consult all of humanity because that's pretty tricky to do, right? Um, and so there tends to be a big disconnect between the very small and uh, pretty specific group of people who's planning to, to actually go out and do activities in space and the entire population of the planet that they're speaking for. And that disconnect is where a lot of these ethical problems lie. Mm -hmm. And when we think of Silicon Valley, I certainly have something in, in my mind about uh, race, socioeconomics, um, the level of education. How much of that do you think was part of the reason 
there was this attitude of, we'll get to it later, which could be interpreted as, it, that is not important, not only now, but that's really none of our concern. Well, certainly, um, yeah, I mean, the, the quick way to say that is that most of these people that I was talking to are rich white guys, um, that uh, that's the shorthand for it, but more specifically, these are people who uh, were trained in things, either, either business or in uh, science and engineering, so they didn't have, just like me, they didn't have a background in the humanities in uh, thinking about social justice and, and human rights, uh, or even thinking about history. The history of colonization on Earth is something, especially in the US American school system, they, they, maybe they covered it, but they didn't pay that much attention. And they didn't study it in depth. Um, and other biases or, 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 or differences in, in this group compared to the entire Earth's population um, include things like they're mostly Americans, so or at the very least Westerners. Um, they're certainly richer than than the average human on Earth. They're English speakers, um, and and so a lot of these things inform the way they think about the world in a way that's hard for them to even notice about themselves. Mm -hmm. One of the things I think that uh, came up as I was considering uh, talking with you for this particular event. I've not thought about space ethics. I've thought about ethics on Earth. I have thought about how messed up <laughs> some things are uh, on Earth. And so there are people who I think understandably and justifiably think, you know, with all that is going on right now on Earth, why is it that we should be thinking about the ethics around humans in space? You know, what do you? What do you say to that, Erica? And, you know, are there useful connections um, that thinking about space ethics has to bettering the, the conditions that we're in now? That's certainly a fair question, and especially with all the money that gets spent on space exploration, there's always a question of, is, is there a better way we could spend this money? Is there a better way we could spend our, our time and our expertise? Um, and I have a couple of answers. One is that if, if we do think that humans are eventually going to be living and working in space, we need to start thinking about what their lives are going to be like as early as possible. We don't want to wait and figure it out later because that'll just lead us to repeating the same kinds of, of harms and mistakes that we've seen on Earth, and there's no reason to do that. Why repeat the mistakes can, if we can learn from our past? But the other reason is something I think about a lot because Personally, I'm, I'm a, a bit less optimistic about how soon humans will be living and working in space than, than some people, your, your Elon Musks and such. Um, I think I have a, a lot of expertise on how harsh the environment is in space and the technical challenges and the biological challenges. And so I think it's going to take us a long time, plus the economic challenges. There's not a clear business case yet. And so I don't think babies are going to be born in space, for example, in my lifetime. And so, you know, in the darkest days of spending my time writing this book, I would go, why am I even doing this? Why bother thinking about this? Now I could be working on other things here mm -hmm. on Earth, certainly. But um, I, I noticed something interesting as I researched, and especially as I talked to people about these issues, and even in myself, which is that thinking about all these different thorny problems in the context of a, a space settlement, this sort of sci-fi setting, lets us not only become more aware of these issues that already exist on Earth and, and the historical lessons we can learn, but it lets us think of more radical solutions to these problems than we would be able to think about on Earth. Because it's hard to figure out, you know, the world is rough right now. Um, 
I can imagine a better solution maybe, but I don't know how I would get there from here. But if you're thinking about starting from scratch in space, uh, in again, a, a science fiction kind of mindset, it's a lot easier to come up with, with these, these wilder solutions. Um, and I think that's a good exercise and it lets us imagine what kind of future we actually want for our descendants both in space and on Earth. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you all a question. I think when you came in, you received a a little card. Do you all have this? No? Okay, then we'll just use your your hands. How many of you are here because you think we should settle space? Raise your hand. We should settle space. Does that kind of represent the kind of response that you get when you are talking with different groups of people about space settlement? Yeah, I almost always get a mix. So for those of you in the front who couldn't see, there was a mix. Some people raised their hands and some people didn't. And as a scientist, I have to say there's something called an observational bias, which means that the people who come to an event like this are probably a little more interested in space than the general (laughs) population. But statistics aside, um, there's always a mix, which is is fascinating to me. Because there are people who are really interested in space and in, in talking about these problems who don't think we should be settling space at all. Some of my colleagues, someone who co-edited a, a, a book with me, just don't think either that we should do it right now, or that we should wait until we're more mature as a species, or they don't think we should do it at all. Um, I am not one of those people. I think that we will settle space if it's at all physically possible, um, then, then we'll probably do it. And so I focus more on, okay, well, how are we going to do it then? Um, but I also think humans are just never going to agree on when we're ready and what that means uh, as a species. But I think it's really important to have these conversations. I, I seek out conversations with people who, who say, no, we shouldn't do this, because those are the best critics. Those are the best people to point out exactly what might be worrying about our, our plans for space and exactly where the harms might come from. So in the process of putting together the, the podcast, Making New Worlds, which led to this book, did you go through sort of a, a journey of, maybe I don't really want this thing? Um, well, anytime you are really getting into the nitty-gritty questions of how we're going to live in space, there's definitely several moments where you go, I, this, I, this doesn't seem even possible. This is going to be so hard. Li- our life would be so hard in an early space settlement. Um, and when you're thinking about the ethical problems, they can get kind of horrifying sometimes because the part of the, the research is to think about the worst-case scenario. You know, what if we have tyranny or war or exploitation in space. And so that, that's not very motivating, uh, I admit. So I went through that journey. Um, but I was always motivated by, by imagining our descendants in, in these different situations and saying, if they're going to be in space either way, if I don't have control over that, um, can I imagine a best-case scenario mm-hmm. as well as a worst-case scenario? So I have a, a question about the way that the book is structured. So each chapter and subsection of Off Earth, it is is a question. It comes in question form. And every section begins with two or more sort of fictionalized stories or scenarios that are set in the past, the present, the future. Why is that? Yeah, uh, so they're all questions, they're all titled with questions because I, I feel like the book is really just a list of questions without any answers sometimes. Um, and that's because I don't have answers to most of these things and I think that the questions are, are the most important part right now is to ask, you know, what are, what are the possibilities here? What are the things we need to worry about? So that then 
smarter people than me can figure out the answers. Um, and, but I did also start each chapter, as in the podcast, I started each episode with uh, a couple of these little vignettes, as my, my editor called them, these little stories. Some of them were um, set in the past, so I had a whole chapter about why people might want to go to space, and I talked about um, different reasons that humans migrated across the planet in the past, and then the stories included a, just a couple little perspectives on what that might have looked like to an individual person. Uh, and then I would come up with a fictional version of, of you, the reader, being in a future space settlement and, and experiencing these same things. And the reason for that was to draw a connection between the struggles that our hypothetical future space settler might face and the struggles that our ancestors went through uh, in the past and, and even today here on Earth. Um, and fiction is, is sometimes the best way to do that. And, and science fiction, of course, has a lot of these, these same questions in it. And so you could say I was writing tiny little science fiction stories, mm -hmm. too. Yeah. So you were obviously doing the research. You're looking for answers. But in, in what way are the questions that you're asking not merely rhetorical? Well, because these are questions that people will have to eventually deal with. Um, and... I think that these, even though they are difficult questions to answer, I think that they, they should and can be answered. Um, more, more specifically, I, I know I said uh, smarter people than me should answer, but more specifically, more people than me should answer. There's no one person or even one group of people who can say, I know all the correct answers to how we should do things in space. And uh, anyone who claims to have those answers is, is probably trying to tell you, sell you something, and it's probably a political ideology. Um, to me, the most important thing is to get as many people as possible asking these questions and then debating with each other what the answer should be. I think that the more different viewpoints we get, the, the better kinds of solutions we'll come up with in the future. Mm -hmm. And do you feel like there are some answers that you are closer to now that you have written this book and engaged with people over what is in the book itself? Oh, definitely. I'm, the best way to learn about a subject is to make a podcast or, or write a book about it, <laughs> certainly. Um, I, I learned more about the, the different problems. Those were the depressing days, of course. But I also learned so much about the ways that humans have solved these problems here on Earth. And that's what gives me hope. Is I, I said we need to learn from our past. There's certainly a lot of cautionary tales that we need to pay attention to so we don't end up repeating ourselves. But there's also a lot of really good lessons learned about the way that, that small groups of humans living in really harsh environments have figured out ways to live with each other, ways to protect the marginalized and, and powerless people among them, uh, how to live with their environment in a way that doesn't overuse their environment. Um, this has been done successfully and unsuccessfully on Earth, and, and so that gives me a lot of hope, too. Can you provide an example that comes from the book? Uh, well, certainly um, there's a lot of indigenous cultures who have lived in a really sustainable ways with their environment, uh, both in the past and today. And even places like the US are learning a lot from that. Uh, I know that um, forestry management and, and uh, preventative burning to prevent forest fires and things like that, this is something that has been talked about with the increase in forest fires in the US, that indigenous management of forests tends to actually have a, a much better result than the way that uh, the, the European settlers came in and just uh, clear-cut everything. And so 
Things like that mean that uh, we shouldn't just look at what we consider to be the most successful, in quotes, society here on Earth for lessons for how we should live in space. We should look at all the different uh, societies, all the different ways to live here on Earth, and, uh, and not just study them from afar, uh, but also get those people involved in the conversation and get them involved in thinking about uh, how we could use that knowledge in space. Mm -hmm. How is that happening? How are more people being in, maybe invited in or making their own way if they have not felt like there was welcome or invitation? Um, I think it's, it's getting better. Um, uh, we've mentioned earlier in this conversation that the, the private space industry in Silicon Valley is still pretty dominated by certain types of people, but that's slowly getting better as uh, certain companies in particular are trying to become more diverse and trying to welcome more diverse voices. Uh, it's going too slowly, in my opinion. Uh, NASA and government agencies are also slowly trying to incorporate more of these viewpoints with a lot of stumbles along the way, but that doesn't mean the work's not being done. There's certainly a lot of people who come to this field of space ethics on their own, totally independently, sort of like me. Um, they start thinking about their interests and their worries about humans, they start thinking about that in the context of space for, for whatever reason, and they start to get worried about it, and they start working on it, and then they start to find other people who are thinking along the same lines, and they're starting to form networks and communities, and that's part of what my, my nonprofit, the Just Space Alliance, is trying to do, is not tell everyone, hey, this is how you do space ethically. We're trying to serve as a sort of hub to connect all these people who are coming to these ideas on their own. Mm -hmm. When we talked on the phone earlier this week in preparation for this conversation today, I had inquired about common questions that you get from folks uh, when you're out speaking, um, during podcasts and that sort of thing, when you are a, a guest. And you had told me that people frequently ask about basics about the law and legal protections, and that Americans in particular want to know about the potential for revolutionary war. What do you make of that, Erica? Yeah, so certainly a lot of the questions are, are basic stuff that a space lawyer can answer. I'm not a space lawyer, but I've talked to a lot of them. So uh, who owns the moon? What are we going to do about uh, if, if two different countries want to grab a different part, uh, the same part of the moon? What are we going to do? There's, there's legal answers to those questions, and there's treaties in place, and that sort of thing's been discussed a lot. But Americans in particular always seem to want to imagine a scenario where we make a space settlement, let's say on Mars, and then the settlement decides that they don't want to belong to America anymore, if they're an American settlement, and are we going to have another revolutionary war, and July 4th in space, et cetera, et cetera, Star Wars. Um, and part of that is because we watch a lot of movies, uh, Star Wars. And another part of that, which was pointed out to me, um, I, I asked, I used to ask these questions, and I asked this question on my podcast to uh, an expert, a colonial historian who studied not just uh, the history of colonization in America, but all over the world. And she said, yeah, Americans are like that. What they don't realize, what we don't realize, is that the U.S. breaking away from our mother country, uh, the U.K., is, it was kind of rare throughout the history of humanity. Most colonies on Earth have stayed on pretty good terms uh, with their, their parent nation. Now, this is specifically the colonies, uh, the, the people of the original country in, in the new colonies. The colonized peoples have not generally had a good time. Sure. Uh, let me be clear about that. But you know, Australia, Canada, et cetera, they, they stay on good terms with their parent nation. Uh, we were kind of an exception. And so this colonial historian I was talking to said, she thinks that in space it's gonna be pretty similar, especially since a space settlement is gonna be so dependent on Earth. 
for such a long time that uh, you don't want to pick a, a fight, start a war with the people who are still sending you uh, crop seeds or, or medical supplies or technology or whatnot. Plus, that's where all the rest of the humans live. So mm -hmm. she pointed out that most colonies you have, if you live in a colony, you had a lot of family connections back to your home country. Uh, you had uh, a lot of you know, financial prospects back there, and that'll probably be true in space as well. And that was nice for me to hear, because um, I don't think a space war would be a good time. No. And, uh, <laughs> and so ha hearing a little more of an optimistic take on, on the likelihood of war in space was nice. Mm -hmm. Now, we're sitting together on a Saturday night, you said, obviously, people are here. It's a self-selecting group. Um, we've come here willingly, I hope, for the, the most part. You know, what settings do you think sort of pose the most potential for you know, productive conversation about space ethics, apart from the kind of situation that we're sitting in right now? Well, certainly a lot of these conversations take place when a bunch of space nerds to get together because they love imagining their future in space. But more and more of these conversations are happening amongst people who didn't necessarily go off and get a, a STEM degree and, and aren't astrophysicists. Uh, maybe they watched a lot of science fiction as a kid too, or maybe they didn't. Uh, maybe they're coming at this from a completely new direction just because they work in, let's say, uh, criminal justice reform. And someone asks them, well, are we going to have prisons on the moon? And suddenly they start thinking about these issues and they start talking to their peers. And, uh, and you get really interesting conversations happening there too. And that, so that's something I really love to see. Don't get me wrong, I like talking to other space nerds. Uh, but I also love talking to people who just do fascinating work and had never considered their work in the context of space, but once you get them going, they can think through all those implications and they can bring something really fresh to uh, this, this sort of sci-fi story playing in our head. Mm -hmm. How many of you want her job? <laughs> <laughs> I spoke recently with a, a St. Louis architecture and design firm. There were, there were a couple of architects from there. And they've done work on the Kennedy, Sci um, sorry, the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex. And we're here at the James S. McDonnell Planetarium. And just next door is the Science Center, St. Louis Science Center. Do you think that venues and institutions that serve as educational sites that pertain somehow to space and science can do a better job of you know, incorporating humanities-informed elements into their exhibits, their tours, um, their materials, and including some of these questions that pertain to ethics of future you know, space, whether it's traveling or settlement. Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, that science museums, especially sort of space-based ones, are a great place to, to introduce some of these questions uh, because it's a good way to, to capture people who are already excited about space and, and get them to think through some of these implications. But I will say some of them are already doing a great job of mm. that. Uh, one I'll give a shout out to is the, uh, the Moonshot Museum, which is, I, I think, in Pittsburgh, um, which is a, a tiny little museum next to, to a private uh, Moonlander company there in Pittsburgh. And uh, I did a little tour of it recently, and it just had a great 
batch of exhibits that talked about what would it be like to build a base on the moon, and also who's in charge on that base? What, hap mm -hmm. what kind of stuff do you get to bring with you? What happens if you have a disagreement amongst yourselves? And so right next to the little uh, diagrams of you know little moon rovers, they had these questions and they would encourage visitors and, and school groups to, to talk those questions out among themselves. So I've seen uh, groups that are starting to do this and, and museums that are really starting to incorporate both, um, both the STEM questions, the sort of ethics and humanities and legal questions, and also the arts, um, which of course, uh, there's a lot of great efforts going on to turn STEM into STEAM and incorporating more of the arts in, in exhibits and, and museums and such. So mm -hmm. I love seeing that stuff. Do you think that there's a little bit more of that because of a generational shift, a sort of you know, attitudes toward space and what it is in relationship to us as humans? That's a tough question. I think um, I think there are always there have always been people who are interested in incorporating the arts into STEM and into thinking about space and our universe. Those people include artists, uh, science fiction authors, etc. I think it's finally now seeping into more of our institutions, like school systems and and the funding for museums, and they're be, being given more financial support and encouragement. To, to really include that uh, without the fear that someone's going to go, oh, either there's art in the science museum, I'm not going there anymore. So Science and the Humanities, this is a Missouri Humanities event. Uh, this is kind of new territory in some ways. What is not new territory, well, I guess, relatively speaking, depend depending on what the context is, the division between science and humanities isn't organic, right? It is something that is human-made. It's a phenomenon that exists, uh, has roots that go back, for some, really far, others, you know, not that far at all, to the latter part of the 19th century. And the way that we casually talk even about being right-brained or left-brained, uh, that seems to perpetuate this idea that science and the humanities are opposites, that they do not belong together. You know, what do we stand to lose by having that sort of attitude toward you know, science and tech and the humanities, like that binary, um, especially when it comes to questions pertaining to space settlement? Yeah, that's a great observation. And, and one thing I'll add to, to your point is that it's really in, in Western cultures and societies where this divide has, has grown. Um, I've, I've talked to um, an indigenous scholar in particular, whose name I've forgotten at this, at this moment, who pointed out to me that that's not the way his society sees um, learning and, and knowledge. It's not that you say, here's science and here's the humanities. They don't even divide up, well, within science there's biology and then there's, there's physics and then there's chemistry. Um, every time you're learning about the world, you're learning about all these different ways of seeing the world, both the, the underlying physical, mechanical processes of it, but also what it means to you and what it means to your family and the way you relate to it as a, as a person that you respect, even though it's a part of nature and not a human. And so, they're all kind of uh, bewildered when they look at the, the Western way of really separating things out. Um, and it's not even the way it used to happen in Western societies, European societies. If you go back far enough in time, back in you know, the Greek 
ancients who, who studied, the, the philosophers were also the ones discovering geometric equations and such. Um, and there's, I think there's uh, quite a lot to lose. For one thing, um, it's really boring to just study one thing and only come up with one way to see the world. And I say that as someone who loves math a lot, um, but I'm also a human who enjoys the arts. Uh, I enjoy interacting with other humans and trying to figure out better ways to do that. And when I, like, when I think about humanity's future in space, I'm not just thinking about a bunch of technology, a bunch of robots um, up there. I'm thinking about humans and, and what it'll be like to live in space, not just in terms of what kind of night sky we're going to see, which is, of course, interesting, but what kind of poetry we're going to write about the night sky that we see and, uh, and what kind of communities we're going to build. And to think about those things, you, you need the humanities. Mm -hmm. Of the ethical questions that you have presented in the book, which is the one that seems to get people really thinking about ethics in a way that they had not before? Uh, I'll give you two answers, which are both about how it changed the way I thought about ethics mm -hmm. in a way I hadn't before. So most people are, again, familiar with property rights or, or how are we going to fight wars in space, and, and they're not too surprised at finding those chapters in the book. But uh, there's a whole chapter in an episode of the podcast I did on criminal justice in space, which is not something I thought very much about. And then suddenly I was researching into this whole world of prison abolition, and, and there are whole societies and communities on Earth who deal with harmful behavior amongst their people without building prisons. And, and come, can we come up with some alternatives um, that work well on Earth that we could use in space so that we never have to build prisons in space? And yeah, suddenly I'm a prison abolitionist and that's not what I expected when I went into space ethics. Mm. Um, and another big area that most people haven't thought too much about yet because it's still a long way in the future is reproductive rights. Can we have babies in space? We don't actually know. We don't know if there's a, a biological challenge to that. We don't even know how to study that ethically mm -hmm. because most people, most bioethicists frown on doing research on experiments on pregnant people and fetuses. And so that's just a huge just medical knowledge barrier and also a huge ethical barrier. And even if we get past that, then there's questions about population control. How are we going to control if a population gets too big in a space settlement or if it gets too small? What can we learn from all the different times that's happened here on Earth and, uh, and the harms that have come with doing population control? So lots of fascinating stuff in that area too. Yeah. I'd like to get another temperature read in here. How many of you would want to go and settle space? For how long? So they're not sure. Erica, questions pertaining to that, the ethics of who gets to go. Yeah, let me ask one follow-up question. I'm, I'm going off script here. How many of you would want to visit space and then come back? Yeah, that's a lot more people. Yeah. yeah. Um, this, this is pretty interesting to me because uh, the number of people who said they would want to settle space, stay there for the rest of your lives, is a lot less than the number of people who raised their hands earlier and said they thought humans should settle space. Right, right. So it's a much smaller group of people who want to make that first leap, um, uh, which of course is, is pretty natural. It's, it's scary. As I mentioned before, it's going to be really physically uncomfortable to go live in the early days of space. And most of us, when we stop to think about it, are pretty fond of this planet. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the nice benefits like being able to go outside uh, without a spacesuit on and, and breathe the fresh air. 
Um, but when it comes to the question of, well, of the people who do want to go live in space, how many of them would actually get to go? That gets kind of interesting, because right mm -hmm. now there's more people who want to visit space than can. I've applied to the astronaut program twice, and they never answer my calls. Um, and we can see of the, of the astronauts that go up, it's a very narrow uh, selection of human society that actually gets to go up and go into space. It tends to look different than most of society. For a long time, it was... Uh, white male military guys, because Russia and the U.S. Were, were hiring from their test pilots. It's gotten a little more diverse since then, but there's also a lot of limitations on, on who gets to be a, a career astronaut. You have to pass a bunch of medical tests, including some really strict physical requirements. You have to have your, all your arms and legs. You have to be within a certain height range. You have to have good vision. And there's understandable practical reasons for that. NASA wants people to be able to fit in their spacesuits and their space capsules. They want them to be able to operate everything they need to do in space. And they don't want anyone with a kind of medical disease that's going to get them really sick in space because nobody wants their astronauts to, to get sick in space. But that means that rules out a lot of people mm -hmm. from ever being able to go to space. And there's some really interesting work being done by disability rights advocates saying, hey, actually, space is actually disabling for all of us, maybe instead we should figure out how to make space and space technology more accessible for everyone. Mm -hmm. um, because someday if we do want to live in space, if we can figure out how to have uh, babies born in space, multiple generations, we'll end up with disabled people in space anyway, um, through accident, illness, birth. And so they're working on things like, uh, it's, there's a program called Astro Access that sends disabled people up on parabolic airplane flights where they can simulate weightlessness for about 30 or 40 seconds. And they've taken people up um, who are, for example, deaf, and they want to see if they can have a sign language conversation if they're like oriented upside down to each other. Or can blind people read braille off the wall of the spacecraft or the airplane if they're floating? Uh, and they're doing really interesting work to, to really explore that problem in a way that hasn't been explored before. We are going to get to some audience questions. The the last thing that I do want to ask, as you were talking about who wants to visit and who wants to settle, it made me think about uh, literature and how it's easier sometimes to read short stories than it is to read a novel, because there's less commitment involved. With the humanities, uh, you know, how do you think that the humanities play into um, finding some common ground with thinking about the complexities of uh, you know, an ever-changing culturally evolving and sometimes devolving world? So much. I mean, the humanities is, is so broad, but I'll give one example, which, which is literature, since you use that metaphor, um, which is that science fiction, I, I love to say this all the time, science fiction writers have been doing space ethics, they've been being space ethicists since long before humans have even gone to space. So they've, they've been imagining what our future looks like in space and what could go wrong and, and uh, what kind of vices within ourselves could, could cause problems in space. And they've thought about the different ways to solve those problems. And literature is such an amazing way to do that in the same way that I added those little tiny short stories mm -hmm. in my book because it lets you not just think about this in sort of a, a cold, calculated, distant way. It makes you actually, puts you into the story. It makes you imagine what it would be like to experience this future yourself, which is really what we need to do if we want to ensure 
uh, a healthy community in space in the future for our descendants where they're not just scrabbling for survival, but actually thriving and enjoying their lives. And so literature is a great way to do that. And of course, art and, and the rest of the humanities are so important for that. Now for audience questions. There will be a couple of people here who have a, a mic, they're mic runners, okay? If you could stand and uh, state your, your name and your question. Hi, my name is Rachel Grant. Um, I have a background in social science and I'm really interested in how people become radicalized. And it seems like one of the easiest way to radicalize a group of people is to isolate them and control how they get information. And it seems like it would be really easy to take control of the information that a space colony would have access to. Um, so is anyone like thinking about that and how we keep free information um, and protected from misinformation in space? That is a great observation, and no, I haven't heard anyone talk about that specifically, but there are there's a number of books on uh, tyranny and dissent in space. Controlling information flow, great observation. Another thing people have talked about is that surveillance will probably be really high because, of course, it's a fancy futuristic space kind of settlement. You're going to have cameras everywhere and automated systems, but that means that the people in charge will know everything you're doing and there'll be very limited freedom. And if you want to, for example, express dissent, you wanna protest against something you see as unjust or you wanna go on strike because your job, you're not getting paid enough in space. Um, if you're in a sort of settlement where someone has central control of things like the doors or the spacesuits or the life support system, then it's really easy to squash a protest by just turning down the oxygen. And so people have talked about how to design liberty into these, these space habitats themselves, which is a very engineering thing to do. Let's, let's you know, solve dissent and liberty with spacecraft design. You also need to figure out how to design it into your cultural and legal and social systems as well. Um, but I hadn't thought about information flow. That's a great observation. Over to the left here. Your name and your question. My name is Sean Dingman. Um, my, oh. Hi. my name is Sean Dingman. Uh, my question is, uh, I realize this is a very controlled environment that I will be asking about, but are space ethicists looking at the interactions of the people on the International Space Station as kind of a starting point to address some of these questions, and have they made any progress with that? Yes, people are certainly studying astronauts on the ISS. Um, as you mentioned, it's a very controlled environment. It's a, it's a bunch of people who are just at work for six months, and then they get to go home, and they've been trained and selected in order to be a, a certain type of person. All that being said, they're certainly being studied. They're definitely being studied medically, Everyone wants to know what's happening to their bodies over time. They're being studied uh, in terms of their psychology, which overlaps, I think, with a lot of the sort of sociology interests. Um, there are a few case studies that people point to. There was a, a Skylab crew that got upset with NASA and some newspaper stories claimed they went on strike, which they didn't quite do, but they study stories like that. And we also study um, humans here on Earth in sort of analog environments like Antarctica or ships at sea um, to, to try to figure out how humans do act in these really weird, artificial, dangerous environments. Uh, and I think that'll continue to happen as humans go farther and farther out. There'll be so much we can learn just, just from watching them. Thank you. We have more there. I'll also say while the mic is walking that I know a couple of space archeologists who are doing an archeological project on the ISS, which is really cool. Hi, uh, my name is John Seilert. I, I had a 
kind of a two-part question. Um, people are probably going to be first settling because um, it's going to be economically advantageous, you know, so uh, probably mining, those types of things. And those companies who would, would help, you know, start up mine settlements, those would be the first probably settlements and then later human settlements. Um, how do you see that being, you know, kind of uh, company culture starting starting that first and then trickling down? How do you see that affecting um, the outcome of, of uh, human settlement? Yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of people talking about that exact scenario right now because that does seem like the likely way that if we get space settlement soon, it'll be outgrowth from, from a mining outpost. Um, I don't know that that's necessarily true. Uh, I think 50 years ago, we would have said that the space, first the space settlements would be national, you know, settlements set up by, by the US or, or Russia. Um, and so it sort of depends on what finally pushes us out there is gonna determine what, what starts this. But if it is mining, or some other uh, financial reason, then we have a lot we can learn from the, in the, the past history here on Earth, uh, especially about company towns. So for those of you who haven't hit company towns in your history classes yet, these were towns, uh, I studied a bunch of them in the US, I'm sure they were elsewhere in the world, um, where everyone who lived in the town worked for the same company. Um, and the company also rented the housing to you and you had to shop at the company store and maybe they didn't even pay you in real money, they paid you in fake company money, um, which was super convenient, but it also meant that the company controlled everything about your life. Uh, if they wanted to raise your rent but not pay you more, you were gonna be in trouble because you didn't have an alternative. And so people worry that space settlements, especially if they grow out of something like a mining outpost, that they'll end up just being company towns. You don't have someone else you can go shop at their store and get cheaper food. You don't have alternatives of housing. Maybe your housing's assigned to you. It's unclear how they're gonna get paid. And most importantly in space, it's gonna be really, really hard to just quit and move to another town. Um, it's so expensive to, to take a, a rocket ship between planets in space. There's a big question of if you work on a mining outpost on Mars, can you quit? Mm -hmm. uh, what does being employed and poor look like in space? Um, and so, yeah, th that's, there's a lot of, of questions if we think about the scenario where profit is our, our first big push to go out there. And before we go to your next question, I know that there are some young folks in here. I highly encourage you to ask a question if you've got one. This is not a space no pun intended, <laughs> for adults only. Kids so. ask the best questions. Yes. I think there's one back there. Hi, my name's uh, Nicole Meyer, and you talked about uh, physical disabilities in space. What about educational disadvantages for, like, for those who don't have masters or PhDs in any of the sciences? That's a great question. That is a big barrier right now to something like the astronaut program. Um, Having applied for it myself, I can tell you, you need to, to apply for a NASA astronaut position, you need to either have a master's degree and three years experience or a PhD. And it has to be in certain fields or you have to have a thousand hours of like jet piloting experience, uh, which I don't have. Um, and uh, <laughs> that makes a certain amount of sense. Then they don't have to put someone through pilot school in order to send them to space. Um, but if you look at what that means for who gets to be an astronaut, you have to be someone who not just can get into and complete one of those degrees, but someone who can afford to stop working and pay perhaps for, for tuition to get one of those degrees. And so that just rules out a lot of people. Um, 
And uh, what I thought you were going to ask about, I'll answer that question too, which is aside from physical disabilities, um, I've had a lot of conversations too about various uh, mental disabilities and mental health issues that also tend to be disqualifying for space, um, but I've had a number of neurodivergent people point out to me the ways that their particular neurodivergence could make them even more useful in space. Uh, and so I think just increasing the diversity in so many ways in terms of our physical bodies, in terms of the way our brain works, in terms of the kinds of lives we've led here on Earth, whether we've grown up poor and not being educated or as educated as you can be, um, I think just, just increasing that diversity is only going to help us. I think we have time for one, maybe two more questions. There's, there's one in the back, too, after you're done. Hello, my name is Sean Harrell. I'm an educator and keeping in line with what we were just talking about as far as education, creating access and encouraging diversity. Um, it seems like a lot of your work, from what I've heard, involves um, with those things on the corporate level. But I'm curious to know um, as far as getting younger people and more diverse groups of younger people interested in um, astro astronomy and astrophysics, uh, physicists younger. Um, what have you seen that people are doing? What do you think best practices could be done better? And uh, just be interested to hear what you had to say about that. Uh Great question, super important question. I'm, I'm not an educator, have a lot of education experience myself. There's a lot of people doing great work in that field. What I will say is that I've seen, on the other end of things, I've seen these space companies say things like, how can we get people to care more about what we care about, about humans going and living in space? And one thing, and they've tried a bunch of different things, mostly tried to explain to the population of the world, why their work is so important to everyone. We're going to give you satellite internet, or we're going to uh, mine a bunch of asteroids and make everybody richer, etc. And what I've tried to point out to them is, instead of trying to explain to people why your work is so important, maybe you should ask those people what's important to them. And I think this would work with, with uh, students as well. What's important to them? What's important to their lives? What are their biggest worries and their biggest interests? And if you want to get them interested in space, what can space do for them and their interests um, instead of just trying to project our obsession with asteroid mining onto everybody? And so I, I think this is uh, something that a lot of educators try to do uh, very well, is to try to figure out what is the interest of the student and uh, how can I show them how this topic helps them with those interests and, and those worries uh, about the future. Hi, my name is Samson, a language lover. So I wanted to know, uh, we're speaking here right now in English. Is that going to be the space language? Just because there's Russians out there, Chinese, Japanese, and many different people who are interested in space. Samson, thank you for your question. I'm the child of two linguists, so I'm going to use up the rest <laughs> of our time answering this question, probably. Uh, great question. Uh, until recently, I think this has just changed, but until recently, NASA astronauts had to learn Russian as part of their training if they didn't know it already. Um, because the International Space Station is, is, was built by, by English speakers and Russian speakers primarily, and so a lot of the manuals and, and technology are, are written in both. Um, the Chinese space station is now going to be run by, by Chinese and Mandarin speakers. Um, and so there's some really fascinating things happening with the intermingling of language in space. At the moment, it's mostly about, well, you, you're going to have to learn this big common language if you want to go to space, which can be its own barrier as well. Uh, I, will I wasn't going to do this. I'll re recommend the book that I co-edited that Elaine mentioned called Reclaiming Space. has a wonderful chapter in it by a sci-fi author called 
Mary Robinette Kowal that's about the language of space, and she talks about a lot of these subjects. The other thing that really fascinates me, um, not so much to do with ethics, is to think about how language will evolve in a space settlement, because languages evolved in the first place with isolated communities who just talk amongst themselves until the language sort of diverges, uh, and I think that's going to be fascinating, along with all the other ways that culture uh, and interests are, are, are going to diverge too. So thank you so much for that question. Thank you. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I guess the, the closing question that I have, since you mentioned literature and sci-fi in the beginning, when you go to space, what are you going to take to read or listen to, and what do you want to eat? Oh, that, that's a great question. Depends on how far I'm going. Uh, hopefully I'm going somewhere where I still have internet access so I can just read all the books. Okay. Um, <laughs> otherwise, uh, my favorite book to read over and over again is this, a Star Trek novel um, called The Wounded Sky. Uh, I'm also big, a big fan of Contact by Carl Sagan, so if I only could take one or two, I would take those. Um, listen to, oh man, coming up with a playlist for space. I would have to think about that for a while. Um, probably similar to my road trip playlists. And what to eat? Um, I'm not that picky of an eater these days, but I think the most interesting thing to me would be to come up with new recipes and cuisines based on whatever we could grow mm -hmm. in space, because that would be sort of creating a new culture and a, and a new favorite recipe. Thank you very much. And thank you all thank for you all coming so much. today. We hope you enjoyed Elaine and Erica's discussion as much as we enjoyed witnessing it. Thank you again to Elaine Chaw and Dr. Erica Nesbold for a wonderful event, and to our partners, St. Louis Public Radio and the St. Louis Science Center's James S. McDonnell Planetarium. Our book-selling partner for this event was Novel Neighbor. To learn more about Erica's work, visit ericanesbold.com. To hear St. Louis on the air live with Elaine Chaw, Listen to St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU, St. Louis, on weekdays at noon and 7 p.m., or find recordings wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for tuning in to the Missouri Marvels podcast from Missouri Humanities. We invite you to engage further by following us on social media at Mo Humanities, subscribing to our streaming platform, Humanities TV, at h-tv.org, or learning more about us at mohumanities.org. We will be back again soon with more marvelous guests and stellar conversations.